1: You're listening to a podcast
0: from the Word. Hello, are we all back? Has everybody got a drink? Is everybody okay? Can we can we restart? Welcome back. Um, this is. I, I don't know if we mentioned this at the beginning. This is the Word in Your Ear podcast recording evening of chat, which is subsequently available as a podcast. And if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, go to wordpodcast.co.uk and you can do that. This is this is the last surviving um sign uh, of the late some say lamented word magazine uh, at which one of our guests here used used to work and uh, and if you read word you might have got the idea that the, you know the, the atmosphere in the office was somewhat somewhat kind of competitive when it came to smart arsery between the various people trying to all try to top each other and making each other laugh and uh, Paul played a very, very long game on this on, this, on the humour stakes. He, 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 didn't, he didn't, didn't deal his cards readily. You know, they, were always, they were generally in response to queries. And we decided, actually, uh, a scientific poll established that the funniest thing ever said in the Word Office... Uh, <laughs> Paul used to say, you to occasionally come in with a hangover, and people used to say, have you got a hangover, Paul? He said, yes, I'm wearing the iron hat today. <laughs> And then one particular day he came in looking as if he had a particularly bad hangover. And Mark said... So is, are you wearing the Iron Are, you, Paul? Wearing, are you wearing and the Iron... And Paul I- said... And Paul said, there was a wide range of metal millinery arrayed around my bed when I awoke. <laughs> uh, I chose this Spanish conquistador's helmet worn at a rakish tilt. <laughs> Which which meant he wasn't really too bad. (laughs) So we all took the rest of the day off. Then I worked up, but uh, you know, people have their various kind of fictional roles on Word Magazine. Mark, we used to say, uh, was Minister for Rock, uh, and Paul was the Secretary of State for for Paul McCartney. You know, so anything involving Paul McCartney. Paul was always the first person to get the coal. And, and lots of that experience is reflected in his excellent new book, Conversations with McCartney, which uh, copies are available outside, which I'm sure Paul will be very happy to autograph for you later on. Would you please welcome Paul Deneuye? <clears throat> and we're going to talk about Paul McCartney. And to ensure a fair fight... Um, We've also invited along uh, an old friend of the magazine who, who previously uh, appeared on the Word podcast and also took part in a, in a, in a Word magazine rock quiz, which, which failed to win a major music industry prize recently. Paul was also a member of the team. Mark was a member of the team. I was there. Failed to win on a tiebreaker question... Which Mark Allen volunteered to answer, didn't you? He said I know. Well, it was only a split second late. Yeah. With and the we, l- we lost. Mark. We lost by by literally .006 of a second. But luckily, he we've forgotten defend- all that. Yeah. Uh, we've but gone over, we've got over it. <laughs> but our, our other guest is, is a distinguished journalist, writing all kinds of places, including the Guardian, about to publish a new book called "The Music of Sadness." Will you please welcome Laura Barton? <laughs> okay. So, he well, handed a start. bottle
2: of wine. This is very nice. A bottle of wine just appeared on stage. Oh right, yes, indeed. Well, the Paul's book, this, which is absolutely tr- one of this screen, actually is having an effect on people's faces. It's got the after the Bob Dylan picture earlier on. Paul looks, seems to have aged uh, that, uh, substantially, but anyway, it doesn't normally look. That's like before he's
0: been lit by before he's been lit by
2: Patrick lit Woodruff, by Patrick Woodruff. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but um, no, Paul's book is that it is. It's a terrific book, and it. It takes... Uh, there are interviews based... I mean, how, when's the first time you interviewed him? When was that? Going back to what, what would have been, the mid-80s?
1: No, the, the first time I uh, met him was in 1979 in, um, in Liverpool. We did a little press conference in... Oh, which um, you
2: describe in the book. It's the enemy when you went to see Wings. It was for the enemy,
1: oh, yeah, yes, yeah. on what proved to be Wings' uh, final tour. Final tour. Uh, so that was my first meeting with, uh, with Paul McCartney. And uh, as interviews go, this was actually the worst ever... In history, uh, it was completely shambolic, and um, uh, my contribution to the press conference was the worst of all. But um,
2: what was your question? Can you remember?
1: I, I can't. Uh, you suppress, suppressed it. I've suppressed you. that memory. Uh, but all the other questions were of the order of, "So, Paul, one of the Beatles getting back together?" This was yeah. one year before the fateful events that night in the Dakota Building. So, you know, people still did routinely ask Paul McCartney, you know, whenever they met him, you know, "Paul, one of the Beatles getting back together?" Um, and then the, so the whole thing is a bit of a washout. And um, I was just so... Maybe we'll talk about this later, but, you know, the experience of meeting somebody like Paul McCartney for the first time is kind of... Let's
0: talk about that now. Go on. Meeting McCartney. What was it like, first time?
1: It's it's not like meeting... I mean, particularly if you if, if were somebody like me of my age who'd grown up with McCartney as this phantasmagorical character, you know, who, with the other Beatles, stalks... Um, stalks your imagination uh, from earliest childhood and then suddenly by hook and by crook you find yourself in the same room and in a position where you're expected to actually ask him a question you haven't got to hustled your way into his attention you're, you are sat there and you are expected to talk to him um, and it's quite um, it's it's just it, it, it's unreal there's a, a bit of you like people say about near death experiences you know there's a bit of you that is actually hovering yeah. Around the ceiling, looking down at yourself, talking to uh, Paul McCartney. And the end result is you blather out some utterly, crushingly inane question about <laughs> his plans for the tour or something. And um, But he has this fantastic capacity, and I'm by no means the only person or the first person to observe this about him, that um, every single person he talks to, uh, he conveys to them the sense that they are unique and whatever they say to him is extraordinarily interesting. It's not at all anything he's been asked a million times this month already. You know, and he has that um, unique uh, uncanny ability, which you can either read as extreme tact and sensitivity or else as the arch manipulative, arch manipulative plans. And that's a difficult word, and I'm sorry I even attempted it. But you know what I mean? He's um, he's He, he is... He's either praised as being a decent kind of everyman, nice guy, or else he was the uh, the canniest manipulator of the Beatles' uh, PR machine. And in a way, he's a bit of both.
0: So, Laura, you've not met Paul McCartney.
3: I've not. I feel like a terrible confession of this uh, this <laughs> evening, but no, I've never met Paul McCartney. But, but you must have
0: had comparable experiences in meeting really famous people. I
3: mean, we were just saying there's no one as as famous as Paul McCartney, really. But um, I was thinking about in quick succession, I met. Diana Ross, Smokey Robinson and Al Green and um, and I was, it was really fascinating that none of them really wanted to talk about music whatsoever and then so Smokey wanted to talk about golf and <laughs> well, wasn't, pre- he was we playing prepared golf for a... no he was playing golf in this bizarre hotel room in rural Michigan um, and Al wanted to talk about Jesus and Diana um, wanted to talk about chicken and her favourite chicken recipe so wasn't wasn't quite what I expected. It's a
0: perfect dinner party, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But you just have to go along with, with whatever they whatever agenda they set, don't pretty, you? Pretty
3: pretty much, yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. I don't but know.
0: The, Paul, my, my experience with Paul McCartney was it's just the same as Paul's. Paul has a figure, you know, hovering above him. I always feel that there's a nutcase like, inside me. Yeah. So on the face of it, i you know yours. You, you, you cross your legs. You try to look really casual. You, you lean back, and you, you don't make too much of making the of answering asking the question. And inside, there's this cartoon character yeah. inside you, leaping up and down, yeah. going, Fuck, "I'm talking to Paul McCartney." <laughs> <laughs> you sort of wanting to ring everybody you know at that moment. This is precisely And, and what pass means. on that, that that feeling, you yeah. know. And he must get a lot of a lot of that. It term. deals with it brilliantly. Yeah, because it's the idea that meeting Paul McCartney is a kind of... It's sort of a negotiable currency. It gives you a certain amount of kudos, doesn't it? Which you can kind of trade on. You get a dinner parties or whatever. And you say, I met Paul McCartney. Everybody's interested, aren't they? Yeah. And, um... I, was, I met him in 19, just the end of 1982, and it was the
2: first, I think, the first interview he'd done after the, the death of John Lennon. And as if I wasn't already wound up about the idea of meeting McCartney, my great hero, I was then given a, the absolute fourth degree by the PR, Bernard Doherty, who said, Do not mention John Lennon. I said, Obviously, obviously I won't. You know. If you mention John Lennon, he'll walk. I said, I don't understand that. you know. And uh, this built up and built up. And was, it was an air studio, as remember, in Air Studios, I can remember an Oxford Street, and I walked down this long corridor, and at the end of this room, in what appeared to be a throne-like chair, with his back to me, was McCartney. As I walked towards him, he turned around, and I just thought I was going to have a heart attack. And actually, your point too is, what uh, well, I, I, I grew up in a household with three older sisters, and we just adored the Beatles. And I simply couldn't hear a word he was saying. I just, I was just imagining that my sisters were there with me. I was just, yeah, just noise. I just wanted my sisters to be there with me. And here we are. And then I got to the point where I was looking out the window, I could see people in Oxford Street. I wanted to bang on the window, and go, hey, "Guys, sorry, guess what? Literally, him. He's here." You know? You just get and, uh, and, and I was told not to mention that when I suddenly came to this is I could hear him talking about John Lennon. And he was talking about, um, you know, as Jen, like, he just got back from New York and he said, him, well, as Lennon said, you know, when asked, you know, how they found uh, America, he said, what turn left? Greenland, you know. So he, he's talking about John Lennon! I'm the greatest journalist in the world! I got back to the office They said, what did he say? And of course, he hadn't said anything at all. I mean, all he'd done was a quote from the past, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, he's brilliantly manipulative with the press, don't you think? I interviewed one for the Radio Times and they was doing the Queen's birthday concert at Buckingham Palace and he just brilliantly, it was the only interview from which all the papers would have to take something just brilliant at the end, described the Queen as a babe. It was just brilliant. A babe was a very voguish thing to say at the time. And no, it was just You just knew, he knew that would be on the cover of the Radio Times and every newspaper.
0: And our job was done.
2: You know, Do fantastic. You,
0: does, I don't know if you, anybody agrees. I've always had this theory that really photogenic people have heads that are too big for their bodies. You agree? And, and, and I think the reason for that is because we're obsessed with their heads because we've seen their faces so many times. So you're looking at them and what you're seeing is like, you remember those old 1940s cigarette cards of footballers? Their small bodies, enormous great heads. That's what you're seeing when you're sitting opposite Paul McCartney. It's not like sitting opposite a, a normal person. You're seeing this, this face that you've been, this just imprinted upon you, you know? And it's a, it's a completely different experience. So, how many times have you sat down with them and have had um, what you might call an interview?
1: I, I, I don't know. I guess it's about. Um... Thirty times or something <laughs> it 's not it 's not all just formal interviews it 's occasions when we were uh, hanging out or something there wasn 't that much socializing but occasionally I would go for dinners with them and things and um, i've used a bit of material from that kind of that kind of thing um, so I was wondering uh, i didn 't want to get into any kind of competition with Mark Lewison or Barry miles because they must have um, spent an awful lot of face time with him, but obviously the publishers are always trying to push you for, what's the big selling point, you know? Are you actually the guy who spent more time with Paul McC- in, interviewing Paul McCartney than anybody else? And I don't know, I might be, but I, I, would, I would swiftly concede the... Uh, the palm to uh, Mark Lewis or Barry Mars, maybe, but I'm, I'm did, up there anyway.
0: Did it help the fact that you come from Liverpool? Did that help in terms it, of did, yeah, it really, it
1: really did. Yes, it was. I, I played on it shamelessly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but one of the many fantastic things about this book
2: is that you've talked to him in um, in a kind of context often which isn't, as you say, an interview. So normally, when people ask him questions, he, he's simply put on the spot and has to respond. And you get amazing revelations out of him because it's just a relaxed kind. He's been asked something he's never often been asked before and gets a real chance to think about it. Just, I have to just mention one revelation in the book which is so brilliant where he talks about the business of songwriting in 1960 or whatever and says that he and John Lennon didn't have a tape recorder. So when they wrote a song, there was no way they could remember what the song was. And so they had to write a song that was so memorable. They said, well, if it's not memorable, if other people don't remember it, what's the point in writing it? So it's got to be that memorable. So that we remember it, which is yeah, a good point. Yes, he would say that. Would... Now, I'd never read that. And that just came out beautifully out of a conversation with you.
1: Yeah, sometimes they would write a song and then they would get back to it with the, the, the all four uh, the group members, and they'd say, "Let's do that song we wrote last night." And then, how did it go again? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Result can't be in that good, you know. So I mean, that comes, in future, an interesting test. in future, we'll only play songs we can remember writing, you know. And that was a pretty good crude litmus test. Brilliant. So, um, brilliant.
0: so you've you've had this. This relationship with them where you you know you've gone and interviewed him and then you've been paid to do things for programs and so forth and you know help with videos and all this kind of stuff so you do you, do you does that call for a great deal of diplomacy on your part do you yeah there' is there occasionally been stuff he's come up with you thought Paul please don't do that
1: I think I knew that I think I knew the uh, the kind of things that he wouldn't want to see in print I had a lot more I had a lot more leeway when I was Doing things for a magazine because, you know, we we worked on big magazines, Q and Mojo and the Mm -hmm. Word, and we had sufficient power. I suppose we could actually go back and print whatever we saw fit, Um, and we did. Uh, But a lot of my other work for him was—I was pretty much a paid employee. I was putting together his tour programs or doing his uh, EPKs, as they call electronic press kits. uh, that or sleeve notes, that kind of thing, and at which, at, at which points he always had the um, editorial uh, oversight. But I have to say, he didn't. Uh, he hardly ever came back on anything, um, I'm pushed to remember anything that I ever wrote about him that he, when he was editing it, that he came back and said, "I don't want that." When he was still with Linda during Linda's lifetime, he didn't like stuff about previous girlfriends, which is kind of humanly understandable, I suppose. There was nothing else, actually.
0: Uh, what about what about your responses to, um, you know, things that he was doing? I, I, I think you mentioned in the book when he announced that he was going to put out a record called Kisses on the Bottom. <laughs> you had to. You had to.
1: You had I, to I didn't of... know this. I'd done the. I'd done the sleeve notes of this um, album. It was all these old vintage Broadway uh, show tunes uh, that he'd known as a kid, mostly, and um, it was it was it was it was being called. Uh, it was called the Standards Album when I was working with him on it. And then he'd wrote, he wrote a new song called My Valentine, and it was going to be called My Valentine. And as far as I knew, that was it. Oh, it's going to be called My Valentine. And uh, then I went to this party. He had a Christmas party. And when I went there, someone said, uh, Oh, have we, sent you, uh, have we sent you a tape yet of uh, kisses on the bottom? I said, Sorry.
0: <laughs> said, Turkey halfway through
1: the new, the new album. The new, you know, the new. You've done the sleeve notes. You know, kisses on the bottom. I said, I don't think so. Uh, it, was called, it was called My Valentine last time I heard. I said, no. Paul has decided um, if he really, if it's called My Valentine, it'll only sell in February. He wants something that's going to sell throughout the year. Or not so sell it actually, throughout. He came up with something that's not going to sell throughout the year either. But um, <laughs> I couldn't be- I couldn't quite believe this. And I was talking to a few other people in the party, and I was saying, we did our best. You know, we tried to talk him out of it. But then I talked to him and said, so, Paul, you know, interesting choice, you know, uh, kisses on the bottom. And I says, yeah, well, you know, man, they all tried to talk me out of this. But, uh, you know, they did the same when I came up with Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hard ban, <laughs> Band. You know, <laughs> Paul, he said, that's not going to work, mate. You know, you've got to, <laughs> you know, it's got to it's be, it's all happening with the Beatles or something, you know. Uh, I said, yeah, great. Um, all the- yeah, so I'm kind of sucking up to him, to be honest. I'm saying, yeah, great. It's like, never mind the bollocks or something, isn't it? He says, yeah, well, you know, I had a few other ideas in that line as well. And uh, I'm not going to repeat them now, but they're actually... <laughs> <laughs> they were far worse than never mind the bollocks.
2: Kisses on the bottom. By the way, did mean kisses on the bottom of a
1: letter, didn't it? The little kisses X on, on the, bottom the bottom of a letter. But the thing I think we're yeah. just yeah, yeah. yeah. just to make
0: up. But I suppose his point about hes always he's always going to win those arguments, isn't he? Because he's always going to say that's what they told me about. She loves you, Sergeant Pepper. Whatever he's always
1: got that up his sleeve. Uh, I mean, the, the Sergeant Pepper thing is one of his ace uh, cars because exactly. was... it was
0: just pulled power out. out. <laughs> yeah.
1: with, wins every battle. So it? you can see why he's a difficult man to win any kind of argument with in the studio or uh, as a member of his band or whatever. Let alone as some pitiful little journalist from the enemy. You know, he have not got uh, yep. a great deal of bargaining power when it comes to uh, playing off uh, historical accounts against uh, uh, one another.
0: So we, 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 we've asked, we've done a bit of preparation. May not seem like that, but we have. Uh, we asked our, uh, our our distinguished guests and ourselves to come up with to come up with our favourite Paul McCartney look. Yes, it's a long career. We decided that's not it. That's not it. Uh, but so um, I'm now going to attempt to switch. Okay, Paul, you chose this. You t- chose the rooftop concerts at Savile road nine hundred and sixty
1: nine uh, january sixty nine yeah uh, I thought he looked great and uh, I thought he looked great at that point. Um, he never did go very far down the hippie road and I was anticipating something mark might say later mccartney 's dress sense was always quite reined in he was quite conser- small c conservative um, but he, but he dressed very well he was um, it also goes to show like the abbey road uh, cover this this fallacy that uh, the Beatles never wanted to wear suits. It was Brian Epstein who made them wear suits. Well, Brian Epstein was dead for two years by this stage.
0: Yeah, and they all wore suits. Been
1: died, he'd been dead for two years before the Abbey Road uh, cover. But um, by this time, they discovered a very good tailor, uh, Tommy Notter. Tom, uh, Tommy Notter and uh, Edward Sexton, this tailoring team who... Uh, uh, Edward Sexton is still going. Um, and uh, I just thought um, that was... Uh, that was just. Uh, the, I'm not sure about the brown shoes. Now that I see the, f- the full uh, the full picture, <laughs> but I suppose they match the Hoff they, mo- they match the Hoffner base, don't they? i come to think of it?
0: Paul was always very much the well, the best dressed person in the word office. Paul was the person who famously said, "Men today dress like toddlers." <laughs> <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Which I think I think it's a good name for a book. Actually. So so that's that's Paul's. But you 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 might take issue with the brown shoes and the and the dark suit. This. This is yours, Laura. Yeah, you, you've got a selection here, or well, we've montage. included a selection
2: here. Yeah,
3: um, this is because I viewed or the, the the two on the left are really because when I first encountered Paul McCartney as a, a young child, it was sort of a more domesticated McCartney than than we might think of him in the Beatles. So when I later saw pictures of him in the sort of Beatles heyday I was quite surprised by how clean he was and and um so I like him when he's a bit fuzzy <laughs> I like how fuzzy he is around the edges at this era um
0: so this is kind of what 1971 or something like that yeah this, the mullet yeah, yeah,
3: yeah I actually used to be quite scared the first ever picture I saw of him was um Red Rose Speedway where he's got the rose in his mouth and I, I found that quite terrifying as a small child but um, but this is how I like him slightly but,
0: and, and the cat's got a particular significance for you
3: this is because um, I haven't interviewed or met Paul McCartney but I did name my first cat Paul McCartney when um, <laughs> when I was Paul McCartney I
2: love it, Paul McCartney not just McCartney not Paul no.
3: uh, I, was, I was four and we uh, my brother and I each got a kitten and my brother we were allowed to name the kittens and my, my brother named his after his best friend Glenn and I thought
2: <laughs> Fair enough. Who's my I'm best call mine
3: Paul McCartney? Yeah. So uh, so I thought I thought you might like this picture of him with with a cat that doesn't doesn't look anything like my cat, but <laughs> So yeah. did,
0: did you go out the back door at night with a you know with a, <laughs> banging a, a, a dish going
3: Paul McCartney? Pretty much was that well? But then, but then he well, you don't need to know about my cat, but he, he became very fat, so he became known as Fat Paul. Um, the, the, the McCartney thing was lost after a while, <laughs>
0: right? Yeah. But so, you, but you, it's an interesting point that you kind of came in at the Paul McCartney. <laughs> Paul McCartney entered your life pre Beatles, well, post Beatles?
3: Yeah. So. As, as the Cats, yeah. Um, in that sort of weird... I don't know if it's just you remember things as a child or whether it was particularly the 80s. The 80s seemed to be so full of sort of brightly coloured characters. And Paul McCartney was very much one of them to me. So, um, uh, yeah. So I knew, I knew him from Sergeant Pepper. My parents listened to Sergeant Pepper a lot. And they listened to Ram and they listened to um, sort of actually more more the post-Beatles stuff for quite a long time. And then obviously um, for, for a chorus was a was a big one so um yes and then so you, you lot came along with your fab maca and, <laughs> aloft and um, so yeah
0: so you y- you'd speak you'd speak in defense of the frog chorus wouldn't
3: I, you i bloody love frog. yeah it was it was it's was good paul, yeah. paul
0: defends it rigorously
2: in good, his book good. And rightly so yeah
3: it's good work that i think all those yeah no i was listening to no more lonely nights as well on the way up here you know Beautiful songs, thank you.
0: Someone's just clapped, so, thank you. So, so, Paul, what's your... I mean, you know, Frog Chorus, you know, it's kind frog of a, chorus, it's an easy yeah. target for lazy DJs, isn't
1: it? It's, it's, it's always been an easy target for people who are just not quite as hip as they think they are, I think. Which is why Radio I DJs. instinctively despised that, uh, uh, that glib dismissal of this. I mean, it was a children's song, you know, it was a children's song designed for a, a cartoon film about Rupert the Burr. You know, what are you expecting? Uh, a tribute to the <laughs> Velvet <laughs> Underground or something? <laughs> it's a very efficient piece of craftsmanship for a specific task in hand. You know, fair enough. John, yeah, Don.
0: Absolutely fair enough. So those, those are Laura's looks. This is
2: Mark's. Oh, yeah, this is mine. Well, this picture was taken on, well, you know this. This picture was uh, taken on the 19th of May, 1967 at Bryant's house. And it's the launch of Sergeant Pepper. And um, I, I like this because, uh, you know, uh, I, as you can see, I know a huge amount about style. But I, I like the fact that McCartney, always looked he looked fantastic wearing kind of Oxford bags and a kipper tie. I mean, he looked amazing in, in virtually anything. And in this particular picture, I always felt that the others were trying just a little bit too hard to be psychedelic. They'd probably gone to the, the self-named uh, uh, Tommy Nutter. They'd gone to some tailor who looked probably exactly like Simon D in the Italian job. Some incredibly camp guy who said, it's all about Afghan coats now, John, you know. And I felt, you know, and psychedelic raiment. And I felt that the others were trying too hard. And McCartney in this picture here is wearing a, a, a fabulous old 1920s kind of, you know, double-breasted pinstripe. And, 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 and in fact, a purple, a purple T-shirt. I and mean, it just looks really good, I think. And although I have to say that the Beatles have a, a box set coming out at Christmas, as you probably know, and there's a, a video of, uh, of Lady Madonna on that, um, which has George Harrison wearing purple corduroy shoes. So that may be actually just one I remember the corduroy shoe yeah so that's pretty good it was good. not a high
0: point <laughs> in the you know, in the history of fashion so that's yours this is mine uh, because it's just an excuse to, to show the back of what I still think is probably what I currently think is their best record actually <laughs> our day's night you know and um, no it's, it's absolutely correct Mark there's no part of arguing about it <laughs> It's so, is a running theme learning... of word podcast, as you know. There's no such thing as an opinion. There's only fact. It's not a debate. It's fact. <laughs> don't, em- don't embarrass yourself by trying to do <laughs> it. But it's I suppose it's, a, it's a echoing Mark's point about the Sergeant Pepper picture here. Now this is an official picture of Ringo <laughs> with, with the mother and father of a double chin. They're more than the Chinese telephone. You must prove that. And uh, John, you know, doesn't look particularly great there. And George is kind of biting his bottom lip one person naturally knows how to have his picture taken. And, you know, to be able to project yourself in a picture is a rare skill, you know. And he, he has that. And uh, I think it's mentioned in the book, actually, Paul, that um, lots of these pictures, of that, that, I think it was taken by Robert Freeman, weren't they, who did loads of them? Yeah, Robert Freeman
1: <laughs> was one of the um, um, most regular photographers, most famously did the, uh, the cover of uh, With the Beatles, where the four the, the four heads are suspended yes. in like half moons in the blackness. Yeah. Uh, He was one of the uh, regular photographers. But the thing about McCartney, I always thought, was that he was, of the four, he was the one who had the right-shaped head for a beetle haircut. (laughs) Uh, I mean, they all had identical haircuts, but they always looked best on Paul for some reason. It's it's an odd phenomenon, but uh, there you go. But uh,
0: isn't the quote in the book that... um... You know, people admire the way a lot of those pictures were taken early on, that the lighting was brilliant and everything. And he says, well, you know, they were just taken in a corridor with a bit of a... The Robert Freeman with
1: the Beatles thing was taken uh, almost instantly, yeah? With uh, Freeman, I think, uh, uh, put them in a dark corridor and pulled a curtain aside to let a chink of light through and uh, the whole thing is done in 20 minutes. But but, but
0: I think what he says is, well, the reason we look legendary is we're pretty legendary material or something.
1: It's a kind of... It's yeah, a, he would occasionally. Point, can... He would occasionally talk about that, uh, just about how um, what it, it's a it's an odd thing, you know, to have been that famous and uh, photographed so many times when you were at the peak of your youth and beauty. And he obviously thinks about this a lot. Um, he's very careful when he's being filmed. You know, it takes a long time to set up a film with him because he wants all the lighting to be. You know, as 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 flattering as it can be. He's not he's not but he's not particularly vain. It's just that he's always competing with this image, you know. Th- this man is always competing with that man. And <laughs> and to give him his due, actually, fur dues, we sent him a choice of pictures for the book cover. In, the the publishers that themselves were really favouring something like that, young, beautiful Paul. And he said, No, I want a really modern one. Um that reflects me kind of talking directly you know to, to 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 me now so again what is i think it's a i think it's a lovely picture but it's not what you would call a flattering uh, yeah. picture but, but it's also but an extraordinary... he chose it that's the thing he chose us yeah. you know
2: and it's an extraordinary thing about the beatles that they broke up with they were all i think you know george was just 27 and uh, you know and yeah. so that they are frozen forever in your mind as a, as a picture of eternal youth which has been fantastic for the group, but uh, 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 unbelievably difficult for him, I'm sure. As you say, every time he walks into a room, people have their mental images of a guy in 1964 singing She Loves You. you know? yeah,
0: so. so let's talk a little bit about, you know, the key partnership in the group and then, you know, the key relationship of his working life, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. I, this question's been asked loads of times. What made it work, Paul, as a, as a relationship between the two of them?
1: Um... Well, I mean, the, f- the first answer is the vaguest, and that's just that some special magic occurred that John Lennon happened and Paul McCartney happened and they happened to meet each other and everything else flowed from that. It's one of those things that, you know, there's no kind of sociology that explains why that sort of thing should happen. You can, you can describe circumstances that made it more likely, um, you know, post-war economic teenage blah-blah stuff, but in the end, that's quite magical, but I think the particular feature of their relationship, the the, the, the creative relationship, is that they were precisely equal. Um, I mean, I was write about Paul McCartney because he was the one I got to meet, and he was the one who lived when I was doing my career. But you know, I wish I'd met John Lennon. He was killed just as I got going, and I never did John. Lennon. I'm sure I would have done. Um, but I'm not a kind of I'm not even a kind Paul guy as, a, as as opposed to being a John guy. I think. In their time together with the Beatles, their talents and their energies were precisely equal. Uh, these two countervailing forces, neither could o- overtopple, topple over the other. They, uh, they produced this dialectic, I suppose, of the intellectual word. There was something so equal that uh, it could only produce a third thing. You know, Element one could not overpower element two, they had to produce element three. And that's what, that was the extraordinary thing that resulted.
0: What do you think, Laura?
3: I think it's um, I think something quite similar, really. But um, whenever I think about what makes a good partnership, whether that's creative or romantic or anything like that, I, I think about um, something that Tom Waite said about Kathleen Brennan, who's obviously both creative and romantic partner. Um, and after this big spiel about all these amazing attributes that she has, um, he says, that's who you want to go into the woods with. Uh, someone who finishes your sentences for you and I kind of think that's the same thing with them if you look at a lot of the songs they wrote together whether that's um, Day in the Life or um, uh, She's Living Home for example, it feels as if they're finishing each other's sentences or even if you look at uh, Strawberry Fields followed by Penny Lane, it's, it's, a, it's a constant dialogue between the two of them All right,
0: right, What about you? i
2: well, gosh, uh, it, it, they both came from the same backgrounds. Paul makes a really good point in the book about that when John yeah, had an absolutely
1: book. identical. I mean, yeah, Paul, he, Paul really likes to play this up. I was the working class guy, and John was the posh. Home, it's it, it, the the differences were tiny. You know,
2: no, they're tiny, but I mean, also the same musical backgrounds. That they, that John really identical. Loved. Yeah. He loved old sort of ballads and uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, You yeah, know, big yeah, show tunes yeah. from the nineteen thirties. We kind of think of him as being somebody just. Was invented by Eddie Cochran or whatever, you know, yeah. and uh, so it's interesting they come from the same, the same backgrounds, but they have a completely different approach. And McCartney writes these, I suppose you could describe them as a vertical songs, huge, great, massive octave leaps, like Penny Lane, and John Lennon writes very horizontal songs, um, you know. Built within a, a very re- constrained uh, number of notes because his, his vocal range wasn't as big, and the main difference is just their approach. McCartney, this extraordinary uh, optimism, and Lennon, it's not pessimism; it's a kind of realism and a, 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 an element of self-doubt and an element of, of kind of paranoia. And I think when they're together, and there's a brilliant example of this actually on, uh, on "We Can Work It Out," which was written by the by the by the two of them in separate sections. McCartney writes that wonderful bit about, you know. Um, you know, we can, work, we can work it out, you know, the, the, the relationship, you know, how, how are we going to make this work? And, and, and Leonard writes that wonderful, Life is very short and there's no time. There's forlorn little uh, kind of intersection with a, with, a, with, a, with a harmonium. And, in fact, George Harrison wrote The Waltz at the end. So it was a real collaborative effort. But I think it's really interesting that that effect obviously... It, 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 it being working together, it must have influenced the other, even if it wasn't direct. And the reason for that, I think, my theory is that the overall impression of the Beatles that you get is one of enormous joy and uh, an optimism. Um, they were never self-pitiful. They were never forlorn. These songs are absolutely rammed with a sense of of just jubilation. And your mental image of them is in primary colours of red and yellow of Sgt Pepper. And I think the main architect of that probably was McCartney. And when the group finished, McCartney carried on making songs that still seemed to be direct derivatives of the Beatles, I felt. And Len and I felt, without that around him, his songs seemed so uh, sour and so um, forlorn, and so savage, and cynical, and I felt it, 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 obviously he they produced different songs within the context of the Beatles, but with outside outside of the Beatles, he seemed a very different entity. One that I actually personally didn't like very much. I don't really like his solo material at all. I'm ashamed to admit that, but it's true. No, I like so. I thought that was a major difference. That...
1: But, but, but Paul McCartney's epitaph, I think. You know, I'm not wishing it to be soon, but uh, I was thinking this line from Arnold, the Arnold Bennett thing. You know, the card, that book Arnold Bennett wrote, and it was, became a film with Alec Guinness. In fact, um, I should have put it in the book. I don't know why I didn't. But uh, in the, the the card is this Jack the Lad character who makes fortune after fortune, and at the end, someone says, "What was he all about?" And the final line is, uh, he identified with the great cause of cheering us all up. And that was Paul Ma- that is Paul McCartney, you know. That, um, which
0: journalists will never give sufficient credit for.
1: They, uh, they? Journalists as a breed don't. I mean, Danny Baker is an obvious exception to this, yeah. but uh, journalists yeah. as, as, as a breed... Uh, tend to admire the Velvet Underground more than the Beach Boys, maybe, or, you know...
0: They, they admire miserable people because yeah. they can entirely identify with them, you know. <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with somebody... Because the greatest thing, you, in the end, the greatest thing you can say about the pop song is it's catchy. Yeah. And that you, you don't fill a thousand words with that, do you?
3: What about Eleanor Rigby? That was a poor song, wasn't it?
0: Yes. but yeah, And she's thing. leaving home.
2: Yes. But, yes. yeah.
3: Well, he was... So we obviously course, ca- yeah, yeah.
2: completely capable of exactly the same kind of thing, but, but Lennon ultimately wins. People think that that's, that's, the, that's the strong message. is think that's
0: true. Yeah. This is one of the things that uh, Peter in Dogger the was, t- was talking yeah. about in, you know, on the podcast recently. Just throw in my, li- my little Thor um, Peneth on the relationship between the two of them. I think, I think the genius of the Beatles was they had no patience whatsoever. They wanted to do it. They wanted to do it straight away, whatever it was. And, and they did brilliant things really quickly. Later on, when they had loads of time and loads of drugs, they started slowing down. And, and the longer the tracks were, the worse they were. Yes? Which you wouldn't have gotten away with that in the early days. You know what I mean? And so they just packed in stuff at every stage. You listen to those early records. And they've, and they've got you know, 50% more catchiness than any other group would have had. You know, the first bit that they wrote would have been enough for most groups. It wasn't enough for them. They thought, no, you've got to put something extra in there as well. And that, you know, that that came between, the, you know, the, 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 the cooperation and the competition between the two of them. Now, we've... We've we've also asked everybody to talk about their favourite post Beatles, Paul McCartney, and I think this is yours, Mark. Well, well, it is. Yeah, I was going to mention. I was just going to mention a couple of other songs. Actually, um, I was going to mention the Fireman
2: records, which are really good. I think I don't know if anyone's anyone's ever heard those. They're the records he made with with Youth, uh, under a, 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 a pseudonym. Really, people didn't know who it was at first, but they're really fascinating because they're, they're electronic experiments with with cut up uh, lyrics. But even even in that, in, in that context, he still cannot possibly produce songs without extraordinary melodies. it's really, really interesting and fascinating there's a couple of songs on um the record that came out called New, which is, uh, when did that come out? Two years ago, is
1: it? Yeah, it's his uh, it's it's most recent studio album.
2: Save yeah. Us and uh, On My Way Home. On My Way Home, I just wrote down the, the, these lyrics actually on, the, on the paper uh, coming in because they're so funny. It's about him being on a green bus when he was a kid. And he says, uh, sorry, it's called On My Way to Work. It says, On my way to work, I bought a magazine. Inside, a pretty girl. Who liked to water ski. She came from Chichester to study history. She had removed her clothes for the likes of me. It's just a brilliant lyric. It's so clever. So sweet. It's just him going back to what he was like when he was fourteen on a Liverpool bus, you know. But the songs that I I I really love it. I love this ram up. I know you're very keen on it too, Paul. It's just it's an amazing record. I'm sure I have some support from the floor here for this terrific record. Yes. And um, it, I think everything about it is, is just extraordinary. The, the, the melodies are absolutely astonishing. There are some of the, the, some of the greatest melodies he ever wrote. The um, arrangements, again, the sense of complete exhilaration, complete jubilation, brilliant songs. There's one called Monkbury Moon Delight, which I learned from your book actually. was published in his book of poetry, which is so wonderful.
1: It, is it, right? it, actually, it's strange he, he to see the, uh, the choice of the songs he chose as being worthy of recital as poetry. Uh, not in a pompous way, but I suppose just because he wanted to draw people's attention. But I think he must have just enjoyed writing Monkbury Moon Delight so much. And um, the lyric pleases him because it reminds him of that pleasure that he took, you know. Another yeah, one was, why don't we do kids. it in the road? To... A horrible
2: sound mm. of tomato, he says at one point. The...
1: Yeah, well, it, 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 Ram is, I think it's also, of all the solo things, it's probably the one album I would play completely. I mean, I like lots of his solo stuff, but... It doesn't always work in units of albums. Um, This one really does.
0: Um... It's often... People say, oh, it was received very badly at the time because it got some unkind reviews, but they weren't all bad at all. The thing that I only realised recently was that uh, Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, was number one in the United States, wasn't it? Number one single. Everybody tends to think, you know, that this record just came and disappeared. It didn't at all, you know. It was never fashionable, that's the important difference, isn't it? So that's that's well, your. A choice. lot of its
2: problem was that Lennon lampooned it very cruelly, didn't he? That uh, well, photograph absolutely. of, of him imagine. holding the ears of a pig. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to. I just wanted to. <laughs> I, I love this record. It's
2: topical, of course, talking about pigs. But <laughs> moving on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I just set I uh, this discussion off. It's only, only, only when I was looking at the cover this morning, you can't see this, it's very blurred. One thing everybody agreed about when this record came out was that Maybe I'm Amazed was a brilliant song. It's next to the last track. It's chucked in there, next to the last track. This was the most deliberately uncommercial move he could possibly make, wasn't it? You know, I'm going to put out a record, and I've got a really nice picture of me with a baby, but that's going to go on the back. I'm going to have some cherries on the front. <laughs> You know what because I mean? it was taken by his wife, of course. Absolutely. Actually, were, so there um, but there's still something I like about that record that, that, that absolute rawness, you know, it was a complete antidote to the Beatles at the time because they'd they started putting track and, and track on, on top of each other. And that was very different. So that's probably my favourite, although I, I like Ram too. Laura, yeah. you chose Red Rose Speedway.
3: Yeah, I'm not, not really sure. Well, still I. haunted um... by the cover. I think I, I do feel quite terrified now. I'm looking at it. Um, I mean, Ram probably, but I like the continuation of some of the, the material from the Ram sessions on here. And in a similar way, just I I like the sort of liberated McCartney. I like I like him away from the Beatles. I like him. I like him. I prefer the live version of Maybe I'm Amazed, to be honest, not the not the album version. And I even like I like him when he's singing with Stevie Wonder and. I like him when he's singing with Michael Jackson. I just I like the fact that he just took the gloves off and just said, "I'm going to do everything." As soon right. As he,
0: yeah. So you don't fall out with his corniness at all?
3: I don't because I grew up in the 80s, probably, so I had right. no real concept of corniness. I, everything was just great. Right. So um, no, I mean, I suppose I, I find him cornier now and cheesier now, and I find the hair dye and things that he era He doesn't much dye his hair, does he? Paul, does he?
1: I I couldn't possibly say. <laughs> yeah. No, he does. That, but I, but I, I I always cut him a lot of I cut him I cut him some slack because he's in show business and he's never denied he's in show business. Yeah, yeah. You go to a stadium, you know, a big arena, a normal dome, mm-hmm. from three miles mm-hmm. away, you see this figure on stage, and he's he's kept his figure. Let's you know, he's
2: got the military jacket on. He's, he's got, got the, the Hofner base. He's got the he's
1: got the Hoffner base. Yeah. Uh, he's got the mop top. He didn't go bald. From three miles away, uh, you are seeing Beetle Paul. Yeah. This is the experience you've yeah. grown up craving, and um, he just goes that one. You know, he goes that extra mile to give people that Beetle Paul experience.
0: He is he is so faithful to the legacy of the Beatles, isn't he? Yeah, you know,
1: yeah. he's never yeah.
0: denied it at all, has he? That Whereas might... John Lennon denied yeah. it like. Crazy. But that
3: might be my sort of slight issue with him now, because the one that I first encountered was so not that, that person. He's sort of gone back to being that person in a bit of sort of a Madame swords way that I find a bit, and, yeah. Not really?
0: Yeah, unsettling. Oh, well. okay. Yeah, sorry. So those are our choices of post-Beatles, uh, post-Beatles, McCartney stuff. What's the best... McCartney's song. I love this game. Again, I know the answer, so it's. I feel. Well, very I common, do know. But, oh, yeah. I love
2: it.
0: I've got it I written down it. here. <laughs> yeah. right. Let's see if you can guess it, Laura. I
3: love this game. Is this like the quiz all over again, where Mark <laughs> claims to know the yes. answer? <laughs> um, yeah,
0: Mark will get up at the end and go, "I know, I know," and we'll all lose. We'll all go home empty-handed. Go on, Laura.
3: Um, can Paul I? McCartney Beatles song. Um, I'm going to say either. Can I? Can I say? She's Leaving Home, can I say? I mean, I realise I wrote them together. She's Leaving Home and, and A Day in Life are my two favourites. Right. But also, um, re-listening, you know, listen to the obvious ones. Listen to Hey Jude. My favourite McCartney moments are when he's tender. We talked about him being bright and poppy and whatever. And actually, I think of him as quite tender and wistful. And, and those are my favourite moments, like like Eleanor Rigby as well. Um, he's, not, he's not the obvious McCartney in those moments to me.
1: Right. What about you, Paul? The official best uh, Paul McCartney song uh, with the Beatles. <laughs> well, I've got about twelve, and, and going because they change from day to day, and that's us, a... a few as well. A few
2: runners up.
1: Oh, well, runners up. Okay. Uh, any, any that Laura has just mentioned would. Uh... Again, I don't know whether you want to mention this, but I'm down on the B-side of. Um, oh God, uh, that's yours. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's no, well. right, I won't, right, <laughs> I won't do this. I won't do this. I'll just go straight to the top then. Uh, uh, the official best song, uh, whole song with the Beatles is uh, is "You Never Give Me Your Money," and here's oh, the re- but here's oh, the reason. Oh.
2: Ooh, the reason the, is that of look, left
1: field. McCart- <laughs> McCartney, is, um, McCartney is one of the least autobiographical uh, writers in uh, in rock music. Certainly, when he, you know, contrast him with uh, John Lennon, but as he himself says, that whatever he sits down and writes, when he looks back at it, and when people like me talk to him about it, he suddenly cottons on that it was actually autobiographical. There was lots of stuff in there that he didn't intend to be um self-revelatory it just kind of came through and he was saying to me oh god you know paul is just just mad man you know because um this fella comes up to america and says that song you know um you never give me your money that's just so deep isn't it you know and he says, oh, god, i thought it was a nice song you know but no come on you know nowhere to go that's like really deep isn't it and McCartney said, if you think so that's great because he, he had no idea what any of it was about, uh, and I said, "Well, surely at least the first bit, everyone says that's about the Apple dissolution." You know, "You never give me money." He said, "Yeah, probably. Yeah, actually, it was about Alan Klein." Um, and it turns out the whole song is completely—it's completely literally autobiographical. This thing, uh, "I never give you—I pi- never give you my pillow. I only send you my invitations." Alan Klein, who was his arch tormentor at that... This is March 1969. Alan Klein kept saying to the Beatles, Paul, he's the reluctant virgin. He wants to get you into bed and then he won't. He says he wants you in bed and then he won't. I never give him a pillow. Only send him, That's what the whole thing is all about. Um, I don't no, It only occurred to me at the weekend, actually. It's not even in the book, but um, it, he talks about it it um, talks about the background in the book and then in the, it's three sections the book is, the, the, the film is this the, sorry, the, the song has these perfect three sections, this very mournful um, all the woes of Apple uh, da da da, I break down and he's literally breaking down, it's the saddest time of his entire life to that point, he is physically um, and emotionally breaking down when he goes home to St. John's Wood, with the sheer trauma of the Beatles break up but at the same time, he's just got together with Linda. Then the middle section is um, he kind of retrieves this memory of childhood, of of, um, of leaving school. His, his, his career has gone nowhere. He should have been a teacher, but he's left before his A levels, and he takes a job as a van driver's assistant. Um, his life has been a complete failure. Little does he know that he's about to join the... Um, or the band he's just joined is about to become the biggest phenomenon in history. As far as he's concerned, he's 16 and he's completely fucked yeah, up his life. Yeah. He's left the Liverpool Institute, this passport to, yeah. passport to future prosperity. He's left. He doesn't know what the hell he's done. But, it's, but he's got nowhere to go. But at the same time, it's kind of exciting. You know, this, for the first time, there are no plans, there are no homework. Uh, schedules to follow then the final thing is the the tempo picks up even further the key changes for the third time and um one sweet dream came true today he's got linda now they drive off into the country the big thing is they, they they take the phone off the hook they refuse to go into any more meetings with apple they just drive off into the country I don't know where they're heading, and uh, and that's their escape from the uh well, that's the very, and the heartbreak. That's and a very
0: eloquent argument for you. Never give me your money, the, which the is the wrong answer, answer is, obviously. Well, the answer know? is obviously I'm down. Oh, okay. I'm down because it's not what people expect. It's the B side of help for cried out loud. You know they could throw gems away like that on B sides, and he did. I'm down on the same day as yeah. he did. I just seen a face, and yesterday. And I've decided I hate yesterday. Can I say this? You know, yesterday's a kind of all right song that became a huge deal because, you know, ballad singers could sing it. You know, and in the mid-60s, everybody agreed the Beatles were a good thing. But, you know, so Ella Fitzgerald would waltz in there and do the most appalling version of Can't Buy Me Love, you know, which makes me ill just to think about it still. And Fitzgerald Gerald's a great artist, but you had no business doing Can't Buy In Love or whatever. And, and whereas yesterday was slow enough that Frank Sinatra and all these other people could sing it, but it's dull as ditchwater, isn't it?
2: Well, I wouldn't say it's Donald Stitch, but I mean, he's got, he's got other stuff, Dave, you
0: know. It's, it's no, he fun. has got other yeah. stuff, but I'm, I'm just saying it's overrated anyway. So the answer is I'm down. So now you can, you can say well, what uh, you uh, think. Well, just, uh, just add one thing to I'm down, which I thought was so brilliant,
2: which is that McCartney's ability to manipulate, particularly the women in his audience, there's a line in I'm down which goes, man buys ring, woman throws it away. Same old thing happened every day. Which is just a genius line. And, you know, with three elder sisters, I was very aware of the lure of McCartney, you know. And, they're, and there are girls sitting there thinking, he buys rings and gives them to, to women and they, they, they don't want him. But, you know, Paul, for God's sake, me! You know? Brilliant, brilliant manipulation in the audience. Where Lennon was writing these incredibly kind of self-interested and inward-looking songs. I can remember uh, hearing, age 12, a Lennon song started with the words, She Said... I know what it's like to be dead. And thinking, that's quite a contrast to McCartney. But the answer to your question is, apart from I'm down, obviously, and and I will, and Helter Skelter, and she's leaving home, I would say it's Penny Lane. (laughs) And I say very briefly why about Penny Lane. Penny Lane is just a phenomenal piece of songwriting. There's a picture of it. Um, It's just extraordinary. It's, uh, you know, it's a memory of his childhood at the same time as John was thinking about going back to Strawberry Field when he was a child. And he goes back to the area around the bus uh, station, Penny Lane, and it's like a piece of... Um, it's like, like a documentary, actually. It's like, a, it's like a, a piece of cinema, or it's like a piece of journalism. So he runs the camera across the street, and you see the banker, you see the fireman, um, you know, you see all these characters, the, the, the barber. And then you, um, you hear beneath the blue suburban skies. And he talks about it being, it's in my ears and in my eyes. So it's this whole idea of sense impression. And then you hear the soundtrack... As he goes down, you, you hear the clanging of the fire bells as, as he goes past, and you hear the little piccolo trumpet as if it was a, a street vendor. It's absolutely extraordinary. And then just to put the tin lid on it, he manages to get all three characters, the fireman, the barber, and the, and the banker, to meet up in the same room in the third row for no reason at all. It has, it's a perfect circular, brilliant song with an incredible melody and arrangement, and I think it's fantastic.
0: Well, it's sad And that that that's it... the
2: right answer, so there we go. So I hope you've enjoyed it, and oh, there's more. Right. It's, <laughs> it's
0: sad that it can only come second <laughs> so there's huge amounts of mythology sprouting around paul mccartney's head you know what's your favorite paul mccartney's story laura
3: i had heard this story and then i looked it up on this thing called the internet earlier and apparently it is an actual story and not just a drunken friend telling me that um, paul mccartney can whistle in burlington arcade is that true well, he's I'm looking at you like you know. Is that true, to... Paul? Well,
0: he's like... saying, well, by special dispensation, can he? Well, it's yeah. like members of the royal family can kill a swan in a, in a, in a royal park.
3: But it's much one of those better. weird laws.
0: McCartney's allowed to whistle in Burlington
2: Arcade.
3: Apparently you're not allowed to whistle in Burlington Arcade... Unless you're
0: McCartney. Unless you're,
3: McCartney. Unless you're Paul McCartney. Um, Very good.
0: Yeah. It's it's a heck of a distinction.
1: Yes. Paul. Oh. Um, t- 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 can I do two quick stories? Of course you can. Um, both, both in the book actually um, when he, he was he was the Beatles were big mates with the Bonzo dog band um, around 67 uh, 68 time and um, the Bonzos were struggling a bit and of course they <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they um, they asked him would he come in and play the uh, the ukulele on a song they were doing Uh, called Urban Spaceman. He said, I'll come in, actually, I'll produce it for you. And um, he came in, and uh, the Bonzos were struggling, a bunch of obscure old art school weirdos, really, at this stage. But Paul McCartney comes in with a big old sack of furry dust uh, and gives them the only top five record uh, in their entire career. And I was talking to Neil Innes, and he was saying, it was just astonishing the star power that McCartney had, because... We were in there, the manager had booked us maybe um sixty minutes of studio time, but McCartney comes in and says, um and everyone kinda of writes off the day. And Viv Stanchel says, I want to at the end I want to put my uh, a trumpet mouthpiece inside a garden hose and swing it round my head. You know that thing that's in the... And the engineers are saying, no, I can't do that now, sorry. And McCartney says, that's a really good idea. And, and at that point, he gets them to refit, fit out the entire studio. So there is now a microphone in every corner of the room to pick up the um, the nozzle, the sprinkler on the end of <laughs> Viv garden hose, uh, which is all part of the, the, the making of this fabulous uh, hit record. But... Um, McCartney could do that, you know. And in the end, the, the 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 record wasn't quite finished. They needed another day. But in those days, you couldn't just ring McCartney up and say, "Sorry, Paul, we need you back for another day." They had to. They called in a new engineer, a young guy called Gus Dudgeon, who finished off uh, the record. Uh, Gus Dudgeon went on to have, have this trilogy of big hits. Um, all of them extraterrestrial. There was the "Urban Spaceman." Next song he does is space oddity by david bowie and the next one is rocket man by elton john <laughs> <laughs> that was the short story we've yeah. got time for the long ones
0: <laughs> well what about you well
2: I'm, 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 it's not it's not remotely funny actually it's just something that really fascinates me it's, it's really the making of, of um uh, the ballad of john and yoko and i think it's interesting because when this record was made I I, I would imagine that it was the absolute low point of the internal relations of the members of the group. Uh, Two of the members of the group were abroad. One had effectively left the group. And John Lennon came back um, with this idea of a song, uh, rang up Paul McCartney and said... and and, They were arguing about Alan Klein. They were in a miserable state of disarray. Incredible personal enmity. But he rang him up and said, I've written a song about my life outside the group with Yoko Ono, who I would imagine would have been one of the reasons for some of that tension anyway, and I want to put it out under the Beatles, under the Beatles name, on the Beatles label it's a Beatles record, and I, I want to make it, I want to make it now, and he went round to McCartney's house, and he played it to him, McCartney heard the song they went straight to Abbey Road, they recorded it in, in four hours, and McCartney and John Lennon, John Lennon played the acoustic guitar, and, and uh, McCartney played the, the drums, and then he dubbed on the bass part, the piano part the percussion part and sang the backing vocal and John Lennon did the two guitars. They finished the whole thing in four hours. And what I thought was extraordinary about it was just it made you realise, made me realise anyway, that what they had between them, that unbelievable alchemical relationship that could produce anything they touched turned to gold was so extraordinary and so heightened and so rare and so valued by themselves, too, and so appreciated that they would override even these dreadful situations that had happened between
0: them to help each other out. And I thought it was really touching. It was fascinating. My favourite apocryphal Paul McCartney story, sadly, you know, it ran for about ten years and then we found out it wasn't true, was that he was breeding a special load of chickens up in the Mullockintyre and he had them flown in from overseas and picked up in a cab at Heathrow and taken chickens all the way up to the Mullocking Tyre. And so surprise drivers on the M six were passed by a London cab full of chickens. <laughs> <laughs> <Carly> chicken. <laughs> Going all the... but this, you know, I, I picked this 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 picture because I don't know if anybody's ever sat in the in the Pizza Express on Dean Street in Soho. Yeah which is round the corner from McCartney's office. And he is occasionally seen, you know, making his way around Soho. And I was once in there, and, uh, you know, and it's big windows either side on the corner, and it was lunchtime. And he went past with a small child on, the, on his shoulder. So, I don't know, one of his own or whatever, I don't know. And, and the whole restaurant just kind of went like that. And he waved back <laughs> all the way round. And I think it's a really important point, because... There's only two people I've ever seen do that. Because the other was occasion was not long afterwards. I was standing by the mall near Buckingham Palace one summer's evening when up came, the royal, with the royal standard, the large limousine containing the Queen. I'm standing there on my own at the side of the mall. This thing's going by slowly. She, she goes, and I go, you know, like... Because <laughs> David Hepworth waved at me! <laughs> Oh, that is a serious point because i thought they're both people who understand their symbolic function. Paul McCartney knows he has to do that kind yeah. of stuff and he's never he's never shrunk from it at all has he? You know that he has that he knows that
1: he's he's yes, different he from most that, people. That's how the thumbs up um, thing uh, developed uh, he had to he always has to acknowledge people he can't ignore anybody ever and uh, the thumbs up was a very economic way of doing that quickly to a whole crowd of people.
0: Yeah, while keeping moving because yeah. never stop.
1: While keeping moving, yeah. And, and if he was
0: in Burlington Arcade, he'd whistle for you as well, because <laughs> we be now know. So, you know, please make a point of making a booking at the Pizza <laughs> Express on Dean Street, where I guarantees to see Paul McCartney. Absolutely. <laughs> can <laughs> I just plug this book one more Every time? Every lunchtime. It's just so good.
2: There are copies available. It's absolutely tremendous. I learned so much about McCartney, and I know a great deal already. It's just a, a riveting read, and I know Paul will be very very pleased to sign uh, copies of it. Absolutely. Certainly,
1: absolutely,
2: yes. So thanks thank so much for Thank you very along. much to both our guests. Thank and you to Laura, Laura. Thank you to Paul. And Baldoi. Thank, thank you, 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 you to David. And thank you very much for coming along.
1: <laughs> Terrific. See you again. This podcast was brought to you by The Word.
2: Spring, is that you?